coming. But first, we're going to spend some time uh, this week with the culmination of Moses' time atop of Mount Sinai as the Lord is speaking directly to Moses. So we're going to close our time out here in Exodus 31. We'll be starting uh, in verse 12, we're going to do 12 through 18. Uh, it's probably called the Sabbath, signs of the Sabbath uh, in your text. The title of our sermon tonight is a Sabbath send-off, because Moses will be being sent off of the mountain, but we're going to be talking about the Sabbath. Um, so this is kind of interesting. We've been talking a lot about the tabernacle. We've been talking about the worship of God, and it, it feels like we've already discussed this topic, and it should feel that way because we have already discussed this topic more than once in the book of Exodus. So it leads us to wonder, the Sabbath, my first point is literally the Sabbath again here, why? Why are we doing the Sabbath again? But it actually fits really, really well at the close of our time, and we'll look at that tonight. Um, It's going to be, it's all sort of this huge you know, narrative. It's obviously God knowing exactly what's happening with his people, to his people, as he's calling his people to himself. He knows what his people are doing. God is not ignorant at all about what's happening at the bottom of the mountain while Moses is at the top of the mountain and while Joshua is somewhere in the middle of the mountain. God is totally cognizant of all of this. And so tonight, what we're going to do is, in essence, get the contrast to what we're going to look at next week. God calling his people to worship him on the Sabbath. All right, so Sabbath send-off. It's interesting, while we were away in Tennessee, I actually had a conversation about um, uh, uh, blue light laws. Have you ever, do we, are you aware of these? Have you heard of these before ever in your life? No? Um, some, some small um, towns may still have them in effect, but on Sundays, there actually used to be laws in effect that certain business, well, Initially, no businesses, but now even to this day in some places, there will be certain businesses that are not allowed to open on Sundays. It's very interesting. It actually goes all the way back to the founding of our, our nation in which you know, people didn't do anything on, on Sundays. Um, and we were discussing this, and you know, his take was kind of like, I just don't want anybody to tell me what to do. And my take was kind of like, well, I think it's really good that we actually have a standard uh, for all of society to actually fall under um, that stems from, you know, a Christian belief system. But nonetheless, that was an interesting conversation to have uh, as I was buying moonshine on a Saturday. So that was what I was doing in Tennessee and having this discussion with the person who was checking me out. And it kind of feeds right into talking about the Sabbath tonight, because in essence, what we're going to be discussing um, is, is what is good for God and his people and how they should celebrate and worship God as God has called him to do. Now, that is what we've, in essence, been looking at since we began understanding what God was giving on Mount Sinai to Moses, the right worship of God by his people as God is calling them to worship him. But here, we close this time, God feels it's most important to yet again call us to the Sabbath, that day where they were to specifically set aside everything else in order to have a day that was different, focused on glorifying and worshiping God. So I'll read Exodus 31, verses 12 through 13. This just kicks off our little section here. It's not a super long section, um, but when we we read 12 or 13, it it really highlights how God is closing this time with Moses. Here's what we read. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. That's how God is going to end his time, by starting to talk with, talk, with, talk to Moses about the Sabbath. Now, this is the Sabbath yet again. Not only that, this is really interesting. Right? This is like for those of you that like numerology, this is kind of interesting. This is the seventh time since we began Exodus 25 and the instruction of how God wanted his, his worship to take place, how the tabernacle would be built, the consecration of the priests, the setting up the sacrificial system, right? How, who would be building these things? All of that, starting in Exodus 25 here to Exodus 31, this is the seventh time that we see the phrase, and the Lord said, or then the Lord said. Kind of interesting, because on the seventh time, he actually is going to say, then the Lord said, he speaks about the Sabbath, which he set up to take place on the seventh day of creation, the day of rest, that's, that's the last day of the week. It's kind of interesting. I don't know. That's a numerology thing for you. Um, so specifically Exodus 25, 1, 30, 11, 7, 30, 17, 30, 22, 30, 34, 31, 1, and 31, 12. Those are the actual seven instances as God has begun to, began to set up his tabernacle that he actually says, then the Lord said. This is the seventh time in the creation of God's holy place and his holy worship that he says it, and he does so to actually call on the Sabbath, just like he rested on the seventh day of creation. Very interesting. I don't know. I, I thought it was cool. Maybe it's too nerdy. Just let it go. <laughs> I want to say emphatically that we here at Mission Day Church believe in Sabbath. We believe in celebrating the Lord, and as we would call it, the Lord's Day. I just ran through a couple of things we've done over the past like you know, five, six years. We talked specifically about the Sabbath and Sabbath rest in spiritual discipline. We had a series on spiritual disciplines, which you may not even remember, but you can go back and listen to all that audio. We talked about it throughout 2019 and 2020 at several times as we looked at the government enacting edicts to deter the worship of God because we very formally wanted to engage with the biblical argumentation for us to observe rightly the congregating and worship of God as he has called us to. Also, this is the third time in Exodus specifically that we're talking here about the Lord's Day, right? He's already instituted it earlier in the, the law. He's, he also did it when he, um, I'm sorry, in the Ten Commandments. He also did it before that when he gave the manna. Do you remember? He instituted the Sabbath rest. This is now the third time, even in our, the course of teaching on Exodus, that we're talking about it. That doesn't even mention the times where I could have gone back and started counting the times we talked about it through 1st, 2nd Peter, Jude. I mean, in the, past, in the past seven, eight years, I'm sure we talked about it several, several times. We, we really enjoy and embrace the understanding of God's word and the right worship of him through corporate gathering and setting aside time specifically that is not like the rest of our week. Amen? I feel like we've been pretty firm on this, pretty clear on this. So we embrace how God is choosing to culminate the Sinai covenant as he's given it to Moses, we embrace this exact thought. This is a great thought. This is, this is the perfect way for him to end it. And we'll, we will illustrate that uh, in detail tonight. There's three big things, though, that are, are slightly different than how he's addressed, it, addressed the Sabbath, both when he gave the manna and also in setting up the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments. There's three kind of interesting things that he wants us to identify, I think, here at the end, uh, as he's already now highlighted what his tabernacle, where he would dwell with his people, and how he would be worshipped through the sacrificial system and the consecration of the priests. And now what that Sabbath would look like, 
there's, there's three specific things that I think he wanted us to pull out that he hadn't illustrated necessarily before. Clearly, what we already know is the Sabbath is to be set apart. We've looked at the meaning of the word Sabbath. We talked about Sabbath several times already. So that idea of setting this day apart, God clearly illustrated up to this point. But in this, in this particular section, even just in verse 13 alone, he pulls on three specific things that are very important for us to recognize. So the three big things. The first thing is that the Sabbath is a sign. He calls it a sign in verse 13. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Now, a sign, we, we, we know, is, is something that is visible, right? And it's visible so that it can be seen, which is kind of like, I know, it's a uh, redundancy there. It's visible so that it can be seen. But like we just, the, the uh, New Life Fellowship got a new sign now that they're Liberty Church, so they just got a new sign and we helped to landscape that. You put a sign up so that it can be observed. It identifies something. Now, in this, and we'll see this in all three of these big ideas, they both have public and personal connotation. There's, there's implications in both the public and the personal. Obviously, a sign it, it is a public thing, as in everyone can see a sign. But it is also personal. The sign is put up specifically because of that particular place or thing has a specific meaning to the person who is establishing and putting up the sign. So there's public and personal involved in that aspect. The idea here, idea here in the fact that it's a sign is that it calls attention to something, namely the re relationship between God and his people. That's the purpose of God establishing and saying that this is a sign. So here it's to draw attention. It calls attention to the relationship between God and his people. Now, it's not just a sign between him and them. It's a sign to all generations. And as it would be being done every Sabbath day for the rest of the history of the Hebrews or the Israelites, it would indeed be a sign to the other nations of the world observing the right worship of God. The next big thing that we didn't have as unfolded yet, either through the manna or the Ten Commandments, is that it was specifically for them to know God in a way that would help them understand God's intentions. Again, this has public and, and personal implications. Personally, that they might know God in a real and deep and meaningful way. Additionally, publicly, they would be sharing in this as a very large congregation. And so it would have a public aspect as well. To know God here is to connect us to who God is and his intentions for relationship with his people. We see this as we continue on in verse 13, that you may know that I am the Lord. Finally, the third big sign is that he is the Lord who sanctifies. And the, the third big thing here is that the Sabbath was set up to make them holy, to bring them into holiness. This is both public and personal holiness. Personally, as they observe the Sabbath, they would indeed be setting themselves apart, sanctifying, consecrating themselves. Also, they're doing this corporately as a nation. They are a whole group, a large congregation of people, publicly uh, sanct being sanctified by God through the Sabbath. So here we have sanctify, which is to make holy. This is closely connected to the idea of consecration. Certainly, in the personal aspects of, of being sanctified is to be made holy, but it's to be made holy never without purpose, but always with purpose, to be set up, right? And so God was calling a people holy, sanctified to himself in the right worship of who he was. And that's the three big ideas that God wants to place here, here in verse 13. 
to end his time with Moses to remind him of how important the Sabbath is. Now, just in those first two verses, we have an incredible understanding that this is an important topic to God. But then it gets super, super scary important as we continue on into verse 14. The point here, though, I don't want it to get lost on the, the you know, stuff, that, the parts that seem scary to us. The point here that God's calling us to in verses 14 through 17 is that Sabbath is meant for us to stop and rest. But it's specific stop and rest. It's not like uh, generic stop and rest, like uh, going to Tennessee could have on vacation was kind of like a, felt, feels like a generic stop and rest. That's a little bit different than Sabbathing. Certainly it was stopping from, stopping from the normal life and it was restful in that I wasn't doing the same things that I normally do and I was able to literally rest. Here Sabbath has an intention. So it's more than just vacation. There's an intention behind Sabbath rest. And so certainly you can go on vacation and also have a purpose. And so you can even make all things that would be restful into Sabbath rest by having the right intention of that thing on the Lord. All right. Stopping and resting and trying not to get lost in the kind of scary parts here. Verses 14 through 17, let's read them together. Therefore, God continues on, therefore you are to observe the Sabbath for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath, to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Stop and rest. I have bullet points that are a little longer than my normal bullet points in this section of the notes, which you can go back and read if you want to reread them, because I was trying to get a little more explainy here than to just like give you a punch of information. Because what we have here is like some weighty kind of like, again, it feels slightly ominous in what God's commanding here. If you don't observe the Sabbath, God will kill you. You will die. You deserve to die if you're not going to observe the Sabbath. Like, well, that sounds really harsh, God. It's real, really, really ruining the mellow out of a rest day here. Like, I feel like all this pressure to rest now and do it right, or else, like, yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of the idea. There is a very serious aspect to the Sabbath that we don't, we don't really connect with. We read this as that God that everyone likes to imagine, that God is just like a, a, an angry parent with a giant club ready to beat his children as they would make a mistake. But that is not this case whatsoever. That is, that is not what's happening in the text here. That's not who God is. God is a loving father, right? We always look at the question wrong when we, when we begin to ask, why would a loving God uh, send anyone to hell? When the question should always be framed, why would a holy God ever allow a sinner into heaven? That's the right question, right? A loving God would send everyone to hell because all have sinned, all are unholy, all, all have volitionally ran to hate God. That's what we do. We are haters of God. It is only a loving God who graciously brings about salvation in each one of his children's lives. Amen? Amen. So let's make sure we understand the question right. This is not mean God uh, judging someone for making a mistake. This is covenant God calling people into a covenant with him to worship him. That is a gift. 
That is a huge gift. It's not possible to rightly worship God unless God is the one who calls and gives it to you. All right, let's try to understand this a little bit. Here what we have, God had connected himself to his people in a physical location, right? We can't forget this. We've unpacked this. The physical location was called the what? Start with a T. Tabernacle. tabernacle. All right. God had given them the tabernacle. This is where I'm going to meet with you. This location where heaven and earth touch at the point of God's presence, right? And he'd given them this physical location. I will dwell with my people. He was condescending to earth to be with his people, and the Sabbath was to be a day that highlighted the personal relationship of his people to him. And so what we have is, in these, since chapter 25, the unpacking of how God is going to live and move and work inside of his people by even physically coming to dwell with them. I mean, every time we talk about this, we should always be reminded that God, how, how great a God we have, that he has progressed in his revelation to us, that now we have his word that we can literally read anytime, all the time, and the Holy Spirit that he actually lives in us. He doesn't have a tabernacle made by our hands. Rather, we are his tabernacle. He dwells in us, allowing us to know his word and his truth. So we should always rejoice when we come to these teachings, but understanding that God said, here, this is my house. I will live with you. Here, don't forget, this is my day where you will come into right worship to understand and live in relationship with me. He then uses phrases like put to death and the soul will be cut off if you don't observe the Sabbath. These are some serious consequences that he connects to honoring the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. And so it feels like these might just simply be arbitrary. But when you put them in the context of how God has called his people to himself, they are anything but arbitrary. If this day was a connection to the Mosaic covenant here, to the Sinai covenant, as the tabernacle was a connection to the dwelling of God amongst his people, then how can we not see the consequences any differently? Because the Sabbath, was to be a day connected to the very covenant, just like the tabernacles connected to the covenant, where God and his people purposefully, in a completely different way, lived in right relationship, connected, set apart, holy, consecrated. If you will, it's almost like the covenant day. It is the day of the covenant. It illustrated and highlighted God calling his people to himself. Why does he put so much emphasis on the Sabbath? Why is there so much? Because we'll see the Sabbath is him calling his people to rely and trust him. To deny the Sabbath was above all else a clear rejection of your desire to be in relationship with God. That's what denying the Sabbath was saying. God, I do not want to be in relationship with you. I reject you and who you are. I reject you calling me your people. That was the denial of the Sabbath. It would be, it, denying the Sabbath would have been like burning the tabernacle. That's the way we have to understand it. And we don't think of it that way. We don't process the Sabbath in that way. But for God, it is that thing. Maybe a better understanding would have been to actually 
like erect a statue of Baal in the tabernacle. It's unthinkable. You look at that, and you would certainly think that person clearly deserves to die. How dare they do that? That is how God treats and looks at the Sabbath. They're both intrinsically connected to God covenanting with his people, to God making a people unto himself. So yeah, it's important. It's really serious. God called his people to cease from normal work and place their lives into his hands. You have to understand that the Sabbath was such a weird thing in the ancient world. There was not, these are, these are, this is an agricultural society. This is a society that lives off of the land, what the land can produce, what livestock can produce. You know what doesn't happen? There isn't a day where the land takes off from needing nurture and care. There isn't a day when livestock does not need to be nurtured and cared. All of these things are, are perpetual. The reaping, the sowing, the cleaning and the cooking and all of that was in essence their lives. They had to do these things. And the Sabbath comes and certainly there were things that still must be done in order to be a loving steward of the creation God gave. But also in addition to that is the reality that by ceasing so many of the normal mundane tasks, you were placing your life, your livelihood, your sustenance in the hands of the Lord. Like it's way, di- it's, even, it's even more so different than, than telling a job that salaries you you're not going to work on Sunday and instead maybe working on Saturday. That's not even that much of a sacrifice. It's, that's, just, that's almost a silly sacrifice in comparison with the fact that if something goes wrong with your crops, you don't eat, <laughs> right? That's, an even, that's a much larger situation, Amen. If a storm's coming and the hail is going to wreck the grain, and instead of getting, you know, 30 bushels of grain, you're only getting 10, that's a big deal. That's like life-altering kind of a deal when that is the sustenance you need to live. Yet God here is saying, I am your God. Put your life in me. I have all goodness and glory. Worship me. Live in relationship with me. That is the Sabbath. God called his people through Sabbath to the deepest level of relationship, the relinquishing of one's well-being into the hands of another, right? To say, not me, not mine, yours, Lord. You love me. You will care for me. I trust you, Lord. That's what the Sabbath said. That's what observing the Sabbath did. God was reminding his people each Sabbath day that he was their God and it was he alone that could love and care for them beyond their own comprehension. He was the Lord who would carry them through, give them a land. He had already redeemed them from slavery. He would make them a nation, a people with a a land, a purpose to worship and glorify God, to be a beacon, a light to the rest of the world a holy nation to the Lord. And the Sabbath was integral in that process. It was an integral necessity in the covenant. And that's why the Sabbath is a big deal. 
That's why to break the Sabbath, to deny the Sabbath, was in essence to deny that God was the sustainer. He was, the, he was not the God he said he was. That was what it was when you were denying the Sabbath. It was to reject him. So certainly, the rejecting of God has consequences. This brings us to the last verse that, that pulls us out of this idea of Sabbath, but pulls us directly in to the, remembering that this is all about covenant. Verse 18 of 31, how Moses begins to end the time, how God ends the time with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai here is what we read. And when he had finished, when God had finished speaking with him, upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. We've talked about this before, these tablets that, that uh, he gives to Moses. We know, we know that these tablets are then placed where? Where do the tab tablets go? The Ark of the Covenant, right? And then the mercy seat is placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So inside the Ark of the Covenant, we have these tablets, Aaron slash Moses' budding rod, and a container of manna, the thing that God gave to sustain the people, the children of Israel through the wilderness. That's what exists inside of the Ark of the Covenant, or what's going to. Remember, we haven't built any of this stuff yet, yet right? I mean, I, I was reminded of that yet again, that I had to keep pointing out the context because I was talking with Kylie and she's like, why are we getting the names of the people that are building this stuff all of a sudden? We've already talked about this. I was like, yes, but wait, we've talked about it in the context of God telling Moses, right? All the building and the happening and the stuff has to happen after this. So it feels like we've, we've been in it for so long that it feels like we've lived it, right? We've got the tabernacle built. We've got the ark built. We've got... The, the showbread is there on the table of presents, the, the lamps lit. Like, we feel it because we've been in this for like years now. But, but this is still Moses receiving all this instruction. And so, so here we get the culmination of the covenant right after Sabbath. It makes perfect sense. The Sabbath is integral to the, co to the covenant, just like God dwelling with his people was. All right, hang on a second. <coughs> I had to cough, try to cover that. All right, the two tablets of the covenant. There's two, right? Two Two tablets. And we've talked about this before. This was not uncommon. This is not uncommon with any sort of contract that we know of today, right? In fact, if you do things, certain things with your HR department, if you have a really old company, like that's one that's, that's been around for a long time, or if you do stuff for the government, you will still to this day, like I go to my mechanic. My mechanic literally has carbon paper, right? And it's, it's not just like you get, there's a copy, a white piece of paper, and then like, you know, a traditional yellow piece of paper. It's like the, the four, where there's literally the white piece of paper, and then there's, there's yellow, and then there's pink, and then there's blue. Now you write on the top layer, and it goes through all of the pieces of paper. So that there are multiple copies of the agreement we're making here. That's what God is doing. This was not uncommon in ancient Eastern cultures when you made a formal covenant contract to have multiple copies. And so we have two stone tablets given to Moses to carry down to the people. In the conventional tradition in the ancient world, there was a copy for the vassal and a copy for the sovereign. This was to illustrate that they both had the covenant. They both knew what the covenant was that they, would, they were to keep and to honor. This just makes sense. This is simple contract law. There's a con the contract is made and it's given to the two parties that are signing so that both of them have a copy so that when the contract is violated, the one party who has, seen, has been violated in the contract can say, look, you said so right here. This is what you said you would do and you didn't do it. 
This, make, this makes very clear and obvious sense to us. That is, that is why we have two tablets. A tablet for the people and a tablet for God. Now, this should raise all sorts of interesting questions. Does God need a tablet to remember his covenant? It's almost, when you start to think about it, it feels almost insulting, right? Why would God even have the covenant written down? It was his word. His word is literally eternal, right? It doesn't, it doesn't change. It doesn't end. His word is, right? His speaking is his doing. That is who God is. Yet here, because it is a covenant, we have two. Now, it's interesting, also interesting. Not only do we have two, we have two stone tablets, this is one of those like really heavy covenants because instead of writing it down on paper, you have, it's stone. It's not going anywhere. It cannot be changed. It's literally where we get the phrase written in stone. But last, generation upon generation upon generation. This was, an, this was a lasting covenant for his people. It's interesting that Moses was to bring these down, a symbol to the people that they would both agreed one to the, the lower, right, the vassal of the two in the covenant contract, the people, and one to the sovereign, the Lord, who would have his copy of the contract. But what's interesting here is what we're, we already talked about it. We know where these two, these two copies end up, right? Where do they end up? In the ark, right? Both copies end up in the ark. Now, where do we place the ark? What, 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 is that, what building is that in? The tabernacle, and who's... Whose house is the tabernacle? God's house. Is that interesting? It's incredibly interesting. Why don't the children of Israel keep a copy with them? Right? They're the other party making the covenant, right? Isn't that, isn't that what's happening here? It's, it's the children of Israel. It's the Hebrews covenanting as God's chosen people with God himself. Both parties need a copy of the covenant. Is that true? Do both, do both parties need a copy of this covenant? No, it's not true. It's, it, all right. <clears throat> this is why both copies remain with God in his presence, in his house. The Israelites needed to know that God was the maker and the keeper of the covenant. Amen? Like we know this to be true. Like God had given them, he was giving them priests. He was consecrating people for the right worship of him. He was giving them the law. He was speaking through prophets, right? He would continue to speak through prophets, Moses forward, giving the people his word. The people were not going to be ignorant without a copy of, of this covenant. Rather, both copies reside with God in his presence in his house because God was not only making a covenant with the Israelites, but he would be the one that would ensure he was also the guarantor of that very covenant. Their infidelity would not limit his calling of all his people to himself through the redemption of sin through blood atonement. Time and time again, does, do the children of Israel not run from the covenant of God? Time and time and time again. Remember, next chapter is chapter 32. It's literally the chapter of the golden calf. <laughs> he has already redeemed them. He has already saved them. He has audibly spoken to them the Ten Commandments, right? That there is only one God, that you shouldn't make idols to him, that you should keep his Sabbath. The first three, they're right there. And the golden calf is getting built. 
because they weren't patient enough. Though the mountain is trembling, though the thunder is raging, though there's flashes of fire and glory on the top of Mount Sinai, they weren't patient enough to wait for Moses' return. They were going to start worshiping another God already. Yes, they would be an incredibly unfaithful people just like you and I are an incredibly unfaithful people. Which is why God is not allowing them to be the one upon whom the covenant security resides. The covenant security resides on God, who is both the author and finisher of his people's faith. Amen? Amen. How cool is that? I think it's awesome. And since I'm teaching, I don't care what you think. (laughs) This brings us to connecting the reality of this covenant to us, to our everyday. Now, again, like I said, we talked about the Sabbath. We talked about the Sabbath this is the third time in Exodus alone. We talked about it many times over the years. We, we believe in worshiping rightly in a, in a corporate, congregational way, God, as he has called us to. Amen? That's what we believe. But it's only appropriate to drill down on how what we do, how we live today, is, is to be exactly how God called the Sabbath to his people. In fact, even more so, right? We, we, we see this constantly throughout Exodus, right? In the giving of the law and the calling of a people. We've seen how today, right, in the church, we have everything that God had unfolded, but in even like more. Like we have the uber version of everything God had called his people to out of redemption from, from Egypt. Not only was he going to build a dwelling with his people, for us, he dwells in his people, literally, right? Not only was he going to establish a sacrificial system where through the blood there would be forgiveness of sins, but we have the atonement of the Messiah. Christ's blood is atoned once and for all sin. That's that's an uber forgiveness, right? We see how that's even more so. So it only makes sense that we would see this idea of Sabbath, right worship, setting apart stopping and resting in the Lord, right? But only on an uber level. It would only make sense that it would be even more so now for us. I mean, it's kind of almost like why we have phrases like rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. We have these phrases in the New Testament now. These are things that are to be done, these worship things, these Sabbath-like things, all the time, never ending to be done. So let's discuss it. Sabbath, the Sabbath is for man. Mark 2, we'll read 23 through 28 again. We started out our service this way. Let's, as we come into this time of, of application and response, this is a good way to kick it off. Mark chapter 2, we have a story of Christ and his disciples, and his disciples are walking through the grain field, and they're picking grain. And of course, The Pharisees have something to say about that. Let's read Mark 2, starting in verse 23. It says this, And it came about that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, See here, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he gave it also to those who were with him. And he was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. 
Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath belongs to Christ. Amen? Amen. The Sabbath belongs to Christ. Christ is Lord of the Sabbath, and he has called us to it for our great good. It is his, and he calls us to the Sabbath for our great good. The Sabbath was not made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath for the man. There's an intention behind what the Sabbath is for us. Now, the Sabbath is Christ, all the more so, because he is the God for which they were to be Sabbathing. They were in covenant with. This is what happens to us all the time. We read, if you don't keep the Sabbath, you have to die. And we will immediately begin to use our piety, our, our false piety, to make laws and, and ideas around what we can and can't do on the Sabbath. Or for us, the Lord's Day, which we'll, we'll get to, we'll unpack that, the Lord's Day, Sunday. We immediately begin to do that. That's exactly what the Pharisees are attacking the disciples in Christ here for. They can't do this, Jesus. God, how are you letting these men do this? They can't do this. Don't you know what you have said? (laughs) That's literally what the Pharisees are telling Christ. Christ says, no, no, no. You've got this all wrong. I didn't make man for the Sabbath. I made Sabbath for man. You're misunderstanding the very purpose of Sabbath. You've You've made it too litigious, Pharisees. You've gone, you've gone too far. You're missing the purpose of the right worship of God. You're holding up the law so high, you can't even see the covenant anymore. We, as men, run to judgment. As sinful men, we run to it faster than we do to God and his Sabbath. Colossians 2 I enjoyed the, the passage of Colossians here. In the church at Colossae, they had a problem uh, with asceticism that was swearing off the things of the earth, right? The, the mortal things that could decay. They would swear them off. They, were, they saw them as, as almost evil. In fact, you were to seek spiritual, a spiritual plane, a higher form of godliness, right? And, and you were to do that in how you treated this earth, Right? There were special things that connected to you to, to spiritual things, and you treated them totally, totally different. You treated them as holy because they were, they were more spiritual. They were uber-spiritual, right? Like the, like the Sabbath. It's an uber-spiritual thing. To, to mess up on the Sabbath was like super wrong because it was spiritual, They had this emphasis on what was spiritual and good. And it caused them to misunderstand and misuse the creation. So Colossians chapter 2, Paul begins to address this. I I started talking so much that I forgot to actually turn there. Now you're all staring at me. All right, (laughs) Colossians chapter 2, we'll read verses 16 through 23. Here is what we read. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs 
to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, why, as if you were living in this world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch, which all refer to things that are destined to perish with their using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Here we have an understanding that things, even the Sabbath itself, can be totally ruined when you forget that the Sabbath is only found in its fulfillment through Christ. That I don't want us to run to the idea of the Sabbath here and forget the covenant that makes the Sabbath meaningful. That's what we can't do. That's what was happening in, in Colossae. The Colossians were, were celebrating certain things in ways that were spiritual, all of those things being things that were man-made, and they were forgetting why any of them could ever be important. It was because of Christ who in them there is actual fulfillment and meaning and purpose. But again, how many times have I said that we hold high the coming together in a corporate worship God? We hold that high here at Mystery Day Church. So don't hear me by explaining this to be in any way degrading the Sabbath or the Lord's Day and the right worship of God. I'm not. I'm simply highlighting that you can have worship on the Lord's Day and be worshiping yourself instead of the Lord. That's what happened in Mark chapter 2. That's why Jesus had to correct the Pharisees. So let's not be so ignorant as to think in the very presence of God it happened that we could not be doing the same thing today. Amen? Instead, let's hold the Sabbath so high, the Lord's Day so high, the right worship of God so high that people see it. And it is a public expression of us as a called people to the Lord. We worship corporately on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is our Sabbath day. And it's not weird and it's not wrong. And you can have this conversation with a person who's a Seventh-day Adventist if you want, but ultimately it will just not go anywhere, okay? Because you have to understand what the word, the, the word is saying in order to understand that we worship on the Lord's Day. A couple of passages in the notes that you can look at, Acts 2, 1 through 4. This is the day of Pentecost, right? The day of Pentecost is when the church receives what from, from, from God? God gives the Holy Spirit the day of Pentecost. Do you know what day of the week that they received the Holy Spirit? The first day of the week, Sunday, they received the Holy Spirit. The, Holy, the day of Pentecost is 50 days after Passover, which puts it falling on the first day of the week, Sunday. And the day of Pentecost, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, was on Sunday, which we know also then becomes the first evan evangelical outreach ministry of the, of the apostles, correct? They then begin to speak in all the different dialects of the gathered 
Jews in Jerusalem spreading the gospel. When does it happen? Sunday. Sunday. Sunday is the Lord's Day. It's the day of resurrection. Additionally, Acts 20, verse 7, we see the people gathering together to break bread and, and rightly hear the word taught. In fact, this is that passage where that poor guy, uh, Eutychus, falls right out the window because Paul won't stop preaching. He preached from Sunday right into Monday like it was nothing. I bet you're glad. Last week was like, gee whiz, an hour and 20 minutes of teaching. But I didn't touch what Paul did, right? It wasn't even close. He turned Sunday into Monday like that and said, we're going to keep going. Poor guy falls out of the window. <laughs> it dies. has to be brought back to life. It's amazing, right? It's crazy. But they gather together when? On the Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Here we see the collection of tithes and offerings on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, when they were gathered together. Paul says, look, I'm coming into town. I'm going to be visiting with you. Don't make that the day where you all bring me a bunch of stuff. You should be giving regularly every time you gather. If that's what you want to be, if there's things you want to give to me, that's when you're going to turn it in. On the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, when you gather together, bring your tithes and your offerings. Additionally, Revelations. Like, Revelations, what's that have to do with the Lord's Day? Revelations 1.10. Do you know when the book of Revelation was written? On the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. Revelations 1.10. What, what does this John say? John says, when I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he gets the revelation from God. Dun, dun, dun. That's why we worship on the Lord's day. We have the resurrection. We have the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, the people began to come together on the Lord's day to corporately read, pray, share, give, all together on the Lord's Day. They began to do everything that they would have been doing in a Sabbath manner, only more hardcore on the Lord's Day. That's what they did. That's what it was. That's why we worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Additionally, we can see every aspect of these Three unique things in Exodus 31 that God was calling the Sabbath in our everyday life. For we are to worship as a public sign to the world. Amen? Our coming together, specifically on a Sunday, is a sign to the world, a public sign that we are coming to worship God, setting apart this time on this day to worship him, rightly, as he's called through his word. The world can see that. It absolutely should be something. It should be that awkward conversation where people do ask you to do something on a Sunday during church and you say, I'm so sorry, that's when I worship God corporately with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you don't, understand that you've taken that opportunity, that sign of what the Lord's Day is, you've taken it away. You've removed it. That's crazy, right? That's, that's, that's weighty. More so, it's better for me to let my kid's soccer coach know that during, during uh, church, we are unable to be at whatever tournament game it is because that's when we set aside time to worship God. Amen. And that is a conversation that has happened, <laughs> right? And you know what? It's okay. It's okay if they don't understand it, if your family and your friends or your soccer coach doesn't understand it. 
But that gives you the opportunity to rightly say, this is the Lord's day. This is the Lord's time. All right, so it's a sign. Additionally, our worship is to draw us into knowledge of the Lord and his word. Amen? They come together, they, break bre- they broke bread, and they rightly heard the word of the Lord taught. That's what they did. That was, that was the whole thing. That was the coming together of the Lord's day. And third, our worship is to sanctify us through washing and repentance in the word, turning back towards the Lord. Repentance, the Lord's day. Just as God sanctifies the church through the washing of the word, we are to wash, sanctifying ourselves on the Lord's day through the word. Also the call of a husband, just to remind, that's part of the call of the husband. It's all scriptural. This is all God's word. That is what we're doing. But here's where it becomes even uber so, even more so, right? Yes, that was the Sabbath, but I would ask you, what of these things is not supposed to be every day for the Christian, right? Isn't there aspects on the personal side, right? Take the public part out of it, the personal side. This is also our every day, amen? Like we're doing this right now, this on the Lord's day as the Lord has called us to do through his word. And yes, and amen, this is right worship. This is a public aspect to that. But personally, these things are all the time. These are never ending for us as Christians. Our worship is to carry forward every day from now until eternity. That's it. We take the Sabbath and we make it life now. Certainly, we celebrate the Lord's Day, but we are called to Sabbath continually. Pray without ceasing is a form of Sabbathing. I don't know if you really connect that that deeply, but when we are praying, we are casting all of our cares onto him for he cares for us, right? We are giving over to the Lord things that are out of our control. We are relinquishing. That's exactly aspects of the Sabbath, is it not? And when are we to do that? All the time, without ceasing. Rejoice evermore, right? It's like an Edgar Allan Poe command from God, right? Rejoice evermore. That is to literally always rejoice, to never stop rejoicing. That's aspects of the Sabbath, the covenant day for the Lord. But for you and I, that we're commanded, that, that's, that's our command in the New Testament, these aspects become even more so than simply the Sabbath. So take the Lord's day. This is, this is, like, this is to be like a, a radiating beacon to the rest of the week. It goes forward into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, and then we're back at Sunday again radiating it forward. We come together as a people around God's word to carry that through the entirety of the week. What a joy that is. So that when we interact throughout the week, we can be interacting in a way that is filled with Sabbath rest. When we're parenting, when we're living with our spouse, when we're talking with our coworkers, we can begin to experience that worship of the Lord's day throughout every day. Then we come back together and we hit it again. 
establishing that beacon, lighting the torch that it would shine again for the next week and over and over and over again until we're in the presence of that radiating light emanating from everything and each one of us when we're in the presence of our Savior. Amen? Here's a quote from John Calvin to walk us into our time of response. John Calvin spoke about the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, this way. He said, the Sabbath should be to us a tower whereon we should mount aloft to contemplate afar the works of God. When we are not occupied nor hindered by any things besides, from stretching forth all our all faculties in considering the gifts and graces which he has bestowed on us, and if we properly apply ourselves to do this on the Sabbath, it is certain that we shall be no strangers to it during the rest of our time, and that this meditation shall be so formed our minds that on Monday and the other days of the week we shall abide in the grateful remembrance of our God. That's what the Lord's Day is for us. To come together in a way that, of course, it generates and reflects and refracts in every other day together. Of course, the Lord would call us together once, once day a week because we need to set apart and stop the doing of the things we do every day. It's not a bad idea to have a day a week where you just don't have your phone in your hand, right? It's not a bad idea to have a day of the week where you have this specific time where you're maybe corporately gathered for a meal with your family. Maybe you gather even more frequently with others on that day. I know it. Some of you guys get together on Sundays before or after church. What a joy. And yet coming together here, even in this, this aspect of the Lord's day, corporately opening the word together, sharing us, brothers and sisters, in the truth of his word, that, that seemingly simple yet extraordinary event that we do on Sunday called the Lord's day is the beacon to the rest of our lives. It highlights and sets up what we are to do every moment of every day. And so, I mean, I'll see you again next Lord's Day, but thank the Lord, I'll see most of you before the Lord's Day. <laughs> I'll see you Wednesday night. We'll spend time yet again opening the Word, discussing it, allowing God's Word to sharpen each one of us, carrying us yet a little further until we come together yet again on a Lord's Day. How cool is that? How awesome is God that he would give us these gifts? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because it is in these times where we stir one another up to love and good works that God has planned for us to do according to his will since before the foundations of the earth. Let's respond and rejoice to the Lord that he has given us the Sabbath and also let us remember to respond faithfully to keep the Lord's day and to allow the Lord's day to affect every other day of our lives. Let's do that in response now.